Well, if you guys are wondering where Bob is, he's been with um, Phil for quite a while now. So I got called in from the bullpen, so to speak. And so we're going to run with that. I do have one announcement, and that's for in the back. Remember, we are still collecting the socks and winter jackets for the rescue mission. So please, if you happen to have gotten those, um, if you could bring those and put them back there. And if not, maybe look around and pick some up. There's still time um, for the socks and winter jackets and things like that for the rescue mission. And before we get into the scripture today, I just wanted to mention, just to encourage us to keep praying for Phil and Arlene and wisdom there. And of course, for the many that aren't still here with us, whether they are at home because of various COVID um, reasons, whether they are you know, in a, in a home and haven't been a part of us for a very long time because they're elderly, just to remember to be in prayer for them. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We are thankful that you came in the person of Jesus to save us from our sins and to bring us to you, to bring us into fellowship with, with you that we are caught up um, in relationship with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We just thank you for that awesome reality. And I just ask for the many that are not with us, that you would draw near to them today. For those that are um, in any kind of pain, any kind of suffering, would you comfort them and help, help them? For those that may not be here because of discouragement, would you encourage their hearts and would you bring them um, back to us soon? God, for those that that are um, sick and continue to stay away because of various reasons, um, help remind us to reach out to them and to encourage them. Father, would you open our eyes to your word today? Help us to understand what you have them to say to us and help us to walk in just these amazing truths that we are learning through what you have to say to us in John 17. And so just do that today. Give us great understanding and light our hearts on on fire for, for you and for your people scattered all through this earth. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been going through a series on John 17. So if you kind of put your finger in your Bible there, John chapter 17 is where we have been at. I've kind of been down in Sunday school the last few weeks, so I'm not sure what Bob has said. (laughs) Um, But we know what God has said, and that's right in His Word. And so we are going to just continue on in this series. What I wanted to do first is just remind us, one, just briefly as a church, what we went through last year. Remember, we read the Bible as a church. We preached through the whole Bible as a church. We love the Scriptures. The Scriptures are the truth. And this year, we decided to focus on prayer for a bit. That not only are we a people of the Word, a people of the Book, a people of the Scriptures, we are a people who pray. We're a people who have access to the God of the universe to cry out to Him and who loves us as a Father. And so we wanted to kind of start out this year with a focus on prayer. And it's amazing how you can even use the Word of God to pray, to pray the Scriptures You can use whatever is on your heart from the biggest thing to the smallest thing to cry out to God because He is our Father and He loves us. So just a reminder, um, as as a call for us to be a people of prayer. And in this world, we need it. We need to be a people who prays. Not just complains, but who praise for one another, for the state of 
maybe our cities, our nations, the state of this world, that we would pray. So, we look at what, with Jesus, what did Jesus pray about? And John 17 is a, is a window into what he prayed for us. It's what they call the high priestly prayer. And we knew that Jesus was a man of prayer throughout his ministry. You'll read in the Gospels, he'll just kind of disappear for a while, get away from people to be with his Father. He carried on a relationship with his Father of one of prayer, disappearing for the night to pray. And here at this point in Jesus' ministry, it's amazing to think about this prayer in context to where he is right now. He is at the end of his ministry. So we find what is on the heart of Jesus when he is about to face the cross is what you read in John 17. When Jesus is about to suffer and die for the sins of the world, what are the things that is concerning him? What are the themes that come up in this? And maybe importantly to us, are those ours? Are those our desires? Are those our prayers? And so... In John 13, it kind of sets the context to remind us of where we're at here in the ministry of Jesus. This is John 13:1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and the scriptures go on. The point is, Jesus has just been betrayed. He's just washed the disciples' feet of the ones who were going to flee from him soon and leave him at the moment of his crucifixion. At the moment where he, he's washing the disciples' feet, he then is going to do Passover and say, communion, this is my body, this is my blood broken for you. And then he kind of goes on in teaching and sharing with the disciples all that is on his heart. Famous passages like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, is said soon after this. The vine and the branches is said. After this, at the end of his ministry, he's pouring his heart out to his disciples so that they would know his heart and his desire for them. And then in 17, we have the prayer of Jesus. And I wanted to read that. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In this section, we see just the passion of him to be glorified. And that he would glorify his Father. In a sense, Jesus praying, in a sense, for himself. It goes on. Verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, 
because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So here you see Jesus praying for the disciples. And then he transitions, verse 20. And these next three verses are the ones of ours this morning, but I'll read to the end. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. That's God's word. Amen. So as I've read this prayer, and just especially verses 20 to 23 these past few days, I've just been thinking about what grips Jesus' heart. What is Jesus passionate about here? What are the things that Jesus prays about here? You know, I've heard it said sometimes that our prayers can reveal you know, our worries, our fears, our passions, our desires, the vision we might have for our life, the hopes we might have. And here we see the very heart of Christ, the prayers that he has. What are they? And I was thinking, if, if you listed what you think your priorities should be, or speaking more broadly, if you thought about what is the priority in this moment, in this time, in this place, right now, what is the priority of the church of Jesus Christ? In the world in America, in Fortuna, in Redwood Christian Fellowship, what would be the priorities that come to your mind if somebody asked you that question? might be something like evangelism, to see the church grow, to see people come and meet Jesus. It might be something like the importance of holiness in purity. It might be making sure that Christians vote. It might be getting each and every single doctrine from the biggest to the lowest exactly right. It might be how do we respond in the right way with coronavirus and restrictions and everything else that goes with that. How do we respond? Don't we respond? Everything in between. What priorities right now do you think that the church of Jesus Christ should have? And of course, what we think should be based on what he thinks. And one thing we learn from Jesus here is that one of the deepest desires of the Son of God, one of the deepest desires of Jesus is that his people be one. Is that his people be unified. And so the unity of the church, the unity of Christians of believers is not just like some second, third, fourth, fifth rate doctrine, idea, practice. It's not way down the list. It's up at the, the very top of Jesus' passion right before he dies is this prayer of oneness, of unity. 
You know, when I was thinking with, with all of the division, faction, partisanship, tribalism, etc. in America, that we have zero, we have absolutely no promise in Scripture that America will remain unified. Absolutely none. There is no promise that America will continue until the end of days and that will be it. But we do have a promise. We do have the prayers of Jesus that his people across every single country will be unified. We have the promise that one day every person that confesses Jesus Christ as king will reign with him in eternity forever. That God will be with his people scattered across every tribe, tongue, and nation scattered across all of history in the past, right now, and in the future. We have that hope. We have that promise. God is one, and his people will be one forever. And so we see that God's passion for his people is great, is of top priority, the unity of his people. And so I think that that's very important for us to recognize and to believe and to ask ourselves, man, do I, do I really have that passion? Do we really, is it modeled in the church of Jesus Christ? Is it modeled in those who confess Jesus, this deep desire to be unified in the person of Jesus Christ? And so I just ask you to consider that, pray, ask you to search your own heart. Well, let's just look briefly at these three verses so that we can really see this. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So that first phrase, I do not ask for these only. Again, as I mentioned as I, as I read it, this is the contract. Who are the these here? Jesus is praying, praying to his Father. Right before, the these are the disciples. Father, I'm not just talking about the disciples. I'm not just talking about not even just the twelve, but the disciples that were following him at that time. I'm not just talking about them right now. I'm talking about others to come. I am praying for you, for us for all the believers after the disciples. I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So who is Jesus praying for here? Jesus is praying for all of those who would believe in him through the disciples, through the followers of Jesus' word. And so that is us. That's every believer who believes in the message about Jesus Christ. How do we become followers of Jesus? Well, we believe the message. This message that's been handed down since Jesus spoke it, since Jesus lived it, died, rose again, and since his apostles and others spread the message throughout the world. The message that takes up the New Testament as a whole. But also for those who will believe in me through their Word. And John, you find out, is quite big on this. If you go to the books 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, you see a lot of talk of the message. He uses a phrase that's the message handed from the beginning. So that sometimes a fancy word is the apostolic message, just meaning we are people who follow what the apostles, what the followers of Jesus has said. Why? Because that's what Jesus said and that's what Jesus did. And so Jesus is praying for those who will believe in me through their word. In 1 John 1, in 1 John 1, 1 to 4, so this would have been written to, this is John writing later to some of the future believers. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was also made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. 
And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So in this, he's saying, hey, I'm writing about something that happened in the beginning, meaning not too long ago, concerning the Word of life. Who's the Word? Concerning Jesus. The Word is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, the Word, is passed on through words. He's saying, hey, we are telling you all of these things because this life this person that we could actually physically handle and touch. Now, we proclaim, we speak, we write, we tell a message about who this person is. The words speak of the word. And in verse 3, it says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. How do we have fellowship with God? How do we come into relationship with God, relationship with Jesus? Well, we hear the message of the word of life. We hear the words about Jesus. And so as Christians, we are people of the word, people of the message. And that's who Jesus is praying for here. All of those like us who would trust and entrust themselves to the person of Jesus Christ, the word of life. So I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word for us. And I think that that's very important to emphasize because this isn't just individualistic. Yes, Jesus is praying for you. Like, write your name there and that is true. Jesus prayed and is praying even now at the right hand of the Father for you. But also, he's speaking in a collective sense that this is the whole church. Jesus is praying for us, for Every Christian, whoever has believed the gospel before us and after us. And we need to understand that because Jesus' heart is for the collective, is for the whole, is for all of the church. And we see that in the next verse, 21, that they may be one. So, we pr- so he's praying that all those who would believe in them through their word would do what? What's the purpose? He's praying for them that they would be one. Well, what does that mean? What does oneness mean? Well, next phrase. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Now, that's almost crazy talk. But this is Jesus praying. Jesus is praying that we would be as one as He is one with the Father. And how is Jesus one with the Father? Jesus is one with the Father, as we learned about through here, from the very foundation of the world. The Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit always has existed forever. Three persons that are one. Diversity and equality. Oneness. Distinction and oneness of essence. Again, we have no analogy for it. Eggs don't work. Things like that don't work. This is, this is such a deep oneness of both distinctness, oneness, threeness, all at the same time. And Jesus is actually praying that the believers would be one like that, just as. Now, some in church history have taken this a little too far. You get into certain types of theosis, which depending on the way you use that term doesn't um, can mean different, different things. But this is not saying that we become gods, that we enter into the essence of the triune God and we ourselves become gods. But don't just say that and then minimize what that's saying because that is talking about some kind of participation in God that is utterly mind-blowing. The intent of God was to bring us into oneness with Him, union with God. That's God's heart for us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Amazing. And I just kept thinking about the way that Jesus talks about their relationship with his Father all through John. Like in John 14, he says things like, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father is working through me. There's just all this back and forth. It's like the Father does what I do. I'm in the Father. Just over and over and over again. And Jesus is inviting and He's praying for His church that that the church would look like that. 
That's mind-boggling. We can't grasp it. But how true it is. Why? Next phrase. Purpose statement. So that. Why is he praying this? What's the object? What's What's the purpose? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus is praying for oneness, for unity, so that the world... Now, this is where earlier he said, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for the disciples. I'm praying for the church. I'm praying for the ones you've given me from all eternity. We get into the mystery of election here and all kinds of different things. The fact that the Father has given people from all eternity that that he is loved to him. And so there's a sense in which he doesn't pray for the world, but then his prayer is that the church would be so one that the world would see it and believe, would actually enter into a part of it. So we have evangelism. Evangelism is a result of church unity. Do we think about it that way? What's the reason why maybe we don't see as much people that haven't known Jesus become Christians? Well, part of it might be unity. Part of it might be our attitudes about other believers. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There's a oneness. When we confess Jesus Christ, all of those who have confessed Christ, there's a oneness of mission, a oneness of love, that somehow the surrounding world will see and then will also believe. And I kept thinking, if we are just as divisive, just as tribalistic, just have as many factions as the world, why would the world want to be in the church? I think that's a big problem. And that doesn't mean we bow to the world, but it does mean that there should be such a kind of love, such a kind of oneness amongst Christians, and I'm not just talking about non-denominational Christians in a regular Christian fellowship or in a particular denomination. I'm talking about Christians among all of the world in every kind of political spectrum, every kind of denomination, all of those who who are connected to the person of Christ and believe the message of Christ, that all of them, there should be such a unity that the world would actually believe. Wow, this is real. Christianity is real. Next verse, 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. This one kind of stumped me. I'm still not really sure what it's talking about. A um, couple reasons why. It's what is, what is the glory? The glory that you have given me, I have given them. Most of the, most of the translations make it sound like this is something that has already happened. Um, but then, and I'm not a Greek scholar at all, there are some ideas of, um, of the type of words that are used here that also might be referring to the future. So I'm just going to mention a few different things. It could be, the glory could be, in a sense, the name that he talks about, that they all have the name of the Father, that they bear the name. They bear the character of who God is. It could be the cross, sacrificial love. We, we see Paul talk about that a lot, about glorying in the cross, that the church is a people of the cross. When I preached a while back in 2 Corinthians, so we can boast in our weakness. Somehow there's a, there's a glory in self-sacrificial, weak, unimpressiveness. There, there is a glory in that. I mean, Jesus is about ready to be glorified, and how is he going to be glorified? Well, he's glorified through the cross, something that is utterly ugly and seen as a curse and an object of scorn. And somehow there is glory in that. So it could be that that's the kind of glory that is shown to the world. The glory of the cross that at at first look does not seem glorious at all. 
but that there is a sense of weakness, a sense of suffering. Why? Because of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. It could be something like, and I was thinking in terms of other writings of John here, it could be that this glory is not so much something that has already been given, and that's when translation issues come down here, but it could be the glory of the future, the future glory. Like in Revelation, which was also written by John. And that's one thing about John. Like when you read this passage and you go read like the letters of John or Revelation, so many of the same things, glory and truth and fellowship and message and all these different words come up. You can go, wow, this is definitely the same guy. Um, But in Revelation, we see at the very beginning, it talks about how Jesus is king and how he is making a kingdom of priests among his people. And there's this amazing... Um, verse, I think in the church, uh, the um, letter to Laodicea, where he talks about those who conquer get to share the throne. Now, one thing you see in Revelation is that the Father and the Son are one. The Son shares the Father's throne. So we believe Jesus is God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one true God. On the throne. And yet, in Revelation it says, when you conquer church, When you're not lukewarm, when you run this race all the way through, when you endure to the end despite all the suffering, despite all the sin, the ups and downs of life, if you keep going, when you trust Jesus, you share the throne. The same throne that Jesus shares with the Father. So again, you have this mind-blowing reality of somehow we rule like the actual king rules. That's glorious. Think about how many people chase political glory in our world. Or you read history and the horrendous ways people achieve political glory. Well, the church of Jesus Christ will one day have utter political glory, not in the way that we view political power now, but this sacrificial conquering kind of glory that actually shares the throne of God. Again, mysteries here that almost if you press on, almost feels like it goes too far. Almost like you're speaking something blasphemous. But Jesus believes and, and prays and says that we share in the glory. And there is a way in which the world will see that. One day, of course, it even says that we will judge angels. So again, there's several things. That there's, there's also a sense of, is this the Spirit? The Spirit doesn't come up a lot in this particular passage. But Paul, when Paul is talking to Ephesians, he talks about the unity of the Spirit and being eager to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, and it goes on like one Lord, one baptism, this whole theme of unity. Is there a sense in which the glory is the Spirit? And we should be eager to keep the unity of the Spirit. Almost like the gel that holds all things together, though you've got to be careful with that because the Spirit is a person, not just some kind of amorphous substance out there. Um, but anyway, there's several different things there. But the point is, there is going to be glory here that we don't even know how to describe. And Jesus is praying for that. Believe it, and that we share as believers in that glory. And then the end of that, again, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Again, that same thing. Them one just as we are one. This is important to Jesus. Verse 23. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. So again, he's doing this back and forth thing. I and them, you and me, them and us. And he says that, I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one. Now he's kind of adding like an adjective or whatever grammatical term that is. Perfectly one. But this isn't so much in the moral sense. Sometimes when you read Scripture, when you see perfect, it doesn't just mean like perfect as in like you've never ever sinned or something like that or just this perfect oneness. It's this sense of goal. So there's perfection in the sense of completeness. So the goal, the end goal is unity. We know that's the end goal because of Revelation. When Jesus is with, when the Father and the Son are all with his believers in the city of God, in the new Jerusalem, his desire to be with his people forever, just like back in the Garden of Eden, and even better. So this is like um, top-notch reality of God's desire, is to be with his people. And one day, the end of that will be perfectly achieved, will be whole. But we know that even before that, 
somehow, and sometimes I go, man, that's not really, not really happening right now. <laughs> somehow, by, by the end of that verse, we know that that reality, Jesus' prayer, his desire that they also, um, that they may be perfectly one, is so that the world, non-believers, may know something else. So again, there should be a sense in which this oneness happens now because the world is to see it and believe. And he fleshes that out a little more in the last phrase of verse 23. So the perfect oneness that his desire is for is so that the purpose of it is so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So there are two purposes here. Somehow, through this unity, through this unity in the person of Christ, the world is going to know the mission of God's mission to save people from their sins. The evangelism, somehow that's going to happen. The world is going to believe that God sent Jesus, that the Father sent the Son, that the world will know that from the unity that it sees. The second thing is that the Father loves the church as much as Jesus. The Father loves the Son. The Father is well pleased in the Son. He has been from all eternity. Unending, eternal love. And somehow... If this truth would get into us, what kind of people would we be? To know that the Father's love for the Son is the same kind of love that the Father has for believers. Well, why would that be? We're not the Son. We're in the Son. The whole theme of union with Christ is that when we trust Christ, we are invited in the Son. And so the Father loves us as much as we, as much as He loves the Son. How can that be? Because we're in Him, because we participate in His very life. By faith, you go, man, I don't really feel that a lot. Yeah, I don't either. But it's true. When you are in Christ, to actually know what, what kind of lives would we live if we really absolutely believed and experienced that, I mean, the Father loves you as much as He loves His own Son. But it's, but it's interesting that, but, the, but what Jesus is kind of, the spin, so to speak, that He's putting on this is that somehow the world would see that. Man, those Christians, they are just so loved by God. The church across the street, they're, they're just so loved by God. Wow, I... I believe this. This is true. God has come in the person of Christ. These people are loved by God. And I think that we do not realize the magnitude of the love that God has for us. We do not realize the magnitude of the love that God has for us. And I was thinking a barrier to our unity probably because we don't realize how much God loves us. And again, I'm saying us. So not just the individualistic me, yes that, but also that God loves the other person, the other one of us. That can be harder to do. It can be really hard to know that God loves you. It can also be hard to really realize, oh, oh, yeah, that one person that I spoke bad about, or oh, that one person that I disagree with about all kinds of different things, not about Jesus, but a bunch of other stuff, but that they actually love Jesus and the Father loves them. And so I was thinking that that could be a barrier to unity and because I think sometimes we, because if we don't believe that God really loves us and that God really loves the other people that we're a part of, we're always going to have to hide the real us. We might hide our sin because we don't know if God can really handle that or that the church can actually handle that. We might try to be right on everything because we kind of somehow, we got to prove ourselves. I got it all figured. I got every doctrine all the way through. I got every social issue, every political issue. I'm pretty much right. 
And that's not the goal. The beloved, ones who know their love, don't have to walk around just trying to prove themselves all the time. Now that means they can still speak the truth, but as we learn, the ways in which we talk about different things matter as, as we learn from Paul that we're to be, when we speak truth, we're to do so in gentleness. Sometimes the church has not been known for the way it gently speaks the truth. It can be known for the wrong way they do it, and which makes people want to go, forget them. And so we should be a people of gentleness. Why? Because we're loved. And why? Because the Father loves sinners. He loves making sinners saints. He invites them into, somehow, into himself. And so there are all kinds of questions that I can't even get into that would have to take way too long and I don't even have all the right answers on. But what does unity look like? Which things do we unify over? Which things do we divide over? That's a whole other thing. Um, and it was easy for me to kind of go, ah, you know, I'd love to kind of hit all these different issues. But I think what's most important for us right now is just to actually not get into the weeds of exactly what, because I think that's sometimes where we get tripped up. Do you actually believe, especially those of you who want to get into the weeds of all of that, do you actually believe that that's true? That Jesus' heart is for unity, and ours better be too. Because those are the people God loves. He gave his life for, that he will be with. And what a picture that will be to the world. When we walk in that, believe that imperfectly, but just to know, there's that phrase, not just to know what we are against, but what we are for. And that's what I want this particular sermon. There's times for other things. But to know that Jesus is for this. This is a big deal to Jesus. The unity of believers. And we need to hear it. The American church needs to hear it. And that, and that our hearts would be unified under allegiance to King Jesus. And that that's our hope. And that one day... We're going to be with all kinds of people. When you start reading church history about different people, about what they believe and what they did, and sometimes even the heroes, you go, ooh, would they even be able to get in my church? Would they even be allowed here? But you find that the church has a lot of issues. But Jesus loves his church. I got a lot of issues. Jesus loves me. You got a lot of issues. Jesus loves you. The proof is we gather together to celebrate who to celebrate him to celebrate his oneness his giving of himself for sinners that he invites to his table to partake in because he gave himself for you to what to actually bring you into the very relationship with him with the kind of unity that the father and son have and that's why we celebrate our, our King who loves us. That's what we're going to do when we participate in communion, to participate in the very life of the Father and the Son that he has given to us. So let's sing, and then let's, let's do that. Oh, and I think you, um, during the song, you can come up and grab communion too.
1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Before we sing the last song, I wanted to pray. And I'm going to pray something from a prayer book. And there's a lot of fancy language. Did you know that we're allowed to pray things from the prayer book? Um, this is from the Book of Common Prayer, Church of England, Anglican. And it's for the unity of the church. And there's fancy words here. We don't got to get hung up on that. We, you, can, you can pray. God, God, God wants to hear our heart. We can pray fancy. We can pray ugly. God's our Father and He loves us. But I'm going I'm to pray this prayer for the unity of the church. O God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our only Savior, the Prince of Peace, give us grace seriously to lay to heart the great dangers we are in by our unhappy divisions. Take away all hatred and prejudice and whatever else may hinder us from godly union and concord. That as there is but one body and one spirit, one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, so we may be all of one heart and of one soul, united in one holy bond of truth and peace, of faith and charity, and may with one mind and one mouth glorify Thee through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.
employees. We have a chance to have a great Sunday, and um, you can, we're welcome to visit in the back, and there's some food back there. And, and drink.